0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Welcome to a special edition of Legal AF Midweek with hosts Michael Popak and Karen friedman Agnifilo. We're joined by powerhouse constitutional litigator and winning Supreme Court advocate, attorney Roberta Robbie Kaplan, to discuss, of course, the leak yesterday of Justice Alito's proposed draft majority opinion dated February 22nd in the Mississippi 15-week abortion law case, Dobbs versus Jackson, that if adopted by the four other justices that we believe are out there, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Thomas, and Amy Coney Barrett, will overturn the law of the land for 50 years, that there is a federal constitutional right to a woman to exercise autonomy over her body and have a right to choose an abortion or carry to term, turning it over instead to the states where at least 23 of them at last count are poised to ban abortion or severely limit it outright the day that Roe is overturned. We'll discuss what Alito's draft majority opinion is and what it isn't and how it got out into the public and what is its substance and reasoning and the implications for the rights of women and other constitutional rights that were also not around in the 1800s. Uh, when the constitution was framed and that are not found in the literal text of the constitution like gay marriage, women's rights and other equal protection and privacy rights. And we'll talk about whether there are five votes since February means that there's five votes now and in the summer to actually overturn Roe versus Wade. I can't think of anyone finer to join our discussion today about what it all means and break it down to the Legal AF audience than Robbie. She's the founding partner of a firm here in New York, Kaplan, Hecker, and Fink, the leading civil, constitutional, and First Amendment boutique firm in the country, she's a newly anointed. I just saw it a day or so ago, 2022 trailblazer as plaintiff's attorney by the New York by the National Law Journal. Um, she has represented everything that matters to our audience involving gender equality, constitutional rights. She's she represents E. Jean Carroll, which the Midas Touch podcast and this podcast have talked about. Concerning her defamation case against Donald Trump, she represents Mary Trump in all things Donald Trump. Uh, she and her firm successfully represented the plaintiffs in the Charlottesville case that we have covered on this podcast against twenty-four neo-Nazis for racial and religion uh, religious based violence. And of all of those many cases over a thirty-year plus career, she's most identified. And what helps us get to the heart of Alito's draft decision uh, with the case of United States versus Windsor a 2013 landmark case in which the Supreme Court ruled that key provisions of the Defense of Marriage Act, known as DOMA, violated the U.S. Constitution, specifically the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause, by barring legally married same-sex couples from enjoying federal benefits of marriage if their state recognized that marriage. And she's the author of a book on that topic called Then Comes Marriage, U.S. versus Windsor, and the defeat of DOMA. That was an opinion that was joined by, written by uh, Justice Kennedy at the time, joined by uh, Justice Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Boy, do I wish that group was all back together again and with, with Justice Roberts in dissent. We'll talk more about that. Welcome to the podcast, Robbie Kaplan.
2: Thank you, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yes, for sure. So let's, let's talk about, as Kara, as what, what did you refer to it in, in the pre-show, the elephant in the room? We, we, we get a disheartening leak of a, well, the leak wasn't disheartening, thank God for the leak, but we get a leak of a majority proposed opinion penned by no other than Samuel Alito, dated February 22nd of this year, leaked by someone, we'll go over those nitty details later, which, over, which makes, no, there's no, no way around this, overturns Roe versus Wade and Casey and rips away the constitutional right and settled law that gives the woman a right to an abortion. That's what we woke up to. Today, we just saw uh, Justice Roberts trying to get to the bottom of the leak and charging the marshal of the court, there's a person we don't normally talk about, to do a deep dive in an investigation. We've got the Republicans wringing their hands, oh, let's get the D- Department of Justice and the FBI, let's find out. They all think it was some, some like liberal progressive law clerk. I'm not sure it was that, could easily have been other people on the bench. Uh, but, but be that as it may, we have, um, let's talk about, Robbie from your perspective, what is that majority opinion What does it say and what is a draft majority opinion? I think our audience really wants to know all about that.
2: Yeah, so the way that it works at the Supreme Court is cases get selected uh, for arguments by the Supreme Court. Now, already there was an an unusual circumstance here because while the the Mississippi case, the Dobbs case, was accepted by the Supreme Court and kind of went through the normal process of briefing and arguments, The case involving the Texas statute, SB-8, that gave private citizens the right to somehow enforce um, this prohibition on abortion or anyone who was aiding and abetting someone who wanted to get an abortion, that did not go through the normal process. There was an emergency request to stay that under Doe because it clearly was uh, inconsistent with the principle of Doe. And the Supreme Court let that statute go into effect, um, which was, not only a huge clue about what was coming, but wasn't really consistent to treat two cases like this so completely differently, isn't consistent with the way in the past, at least, the Supreme Court has liked to do things. But to give you an example, in the case that I argued at the Supreme Court in the United States v. Windsor, that case was paired with a Prop 8 case out of California from David Boyes and Ted Olson. And I think they had something like four or five conferences, the justices in order to figure out how to put the two cases together in the best way and have it be orderly, et cetera. Um, That's not what happened here. Uh, Mississippi was argued according to the normal process. The Texas case was not. Um, So already you have that irregularity, but when they set a briefing schedule for the Mississippi case, which was briefs went in from a zillion different people, amicus briefs, et cetera, there was an argument as you typically would expect. Um, And then what the justices do is they have a conference After argument, where it's the first time they're all together and they vote on the case. And what is seems to be clear from what we have now is that at that conference, there were five hard votes in favor of overruling Roe v. Wade.
1: And that would have been in February, right, Robbie?
2: That would have been shortly after the argument, correct. Mm -hmm. And those votes were Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh. Um, Thomas, I think I didn't mention. Well,
1: Amy that. Coney Barrett.
2: And Barrett, excuse me. Right. Where are the five? What are the five hard votes? Uh, it looks now we know from further leaks that came out that Roberts is somewhere in the middle, and then you have Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan in dissent. Um, once that vote happens, the justices start drafting, and someone is assigned to draft the majority opinion, and then whoever wants to write a dissent gets to write a dissent. Typically, the most senior judge in the majority assigns the majority opinion in this court it is typically until about a year ago been chief justice roberts um what makes it very clear that roberts was not in the majority here is in a case like this he almost certainly would have assigned the opinion to himself um or had some vision about assigning it to amy coney barrett since she's a woman or something like that but the fact that alito is writing means that Chief Justice Roberts did not make that decision. The most senior next judge did, and that was Justice Alito.
1: So let me just, yeah, that's, let me unpack that a little bit. So from a strategy, from a game strategy standpoint, do you think in retrospect, Roberts probably should have slid over to the majority once he saw the writing on the wall to help shape a result like he did in Obamacare, rather than stay on the sidelines and let it go to the most, one of the most, um, right as the right wing conservative justices on the Supreme Court. I mean, he's just to the right of Attila the Hun in terms of uh, the politics and letting Alito of all people, I guess the next worst would have been Clarence Thomas. What, what do you think about that? Was that a possibility?
2: I think my, my best guess, and there's no way of knowing it, my best guess is what, not only do they vote, but they explain their rationale for the vote. And that all five of those justices we now see in the majority made it very clear not only that they were going to uh, allow the Mississippi abortion law to go, uh, anti-abortion law to go into effect, but that they were intended to do so by explicitly overruling Casey, another case subsequent to Roe, and Roe. And for someone like the chief justice who, who really believes so strongly in the legitimacy of the court, I don't think, my best guess is he was unwilling to sign on to something like that. That's the kind of enterprise that I think he would find very, very destructive to the court and its legitimacy and its kind of strength within our American constitutional system. And so my guess is they were so clear that that's what they wanted to do. He was unwilling to sign on to that. That's he my wanted just,
1: then he to just get out of the way. And Yeah,
2: there's no way. I think in history, there's no way to, unlike Obamacare, there's no way to kind of be in the middle mm-hmm. between overruling Casey and Roe and not overruling Casey versus Roe. And there's no way to overrule those cases and kind of soften the fact that you are overturning 50 years of established constitutional precedent.
3: Although this is says draft and, and they've come out and said it's a draft, how how close to the final result do you think this is? And is Alito going to be the author? I mean, does that ever change? Does I mean, because someone put a lot of work into it, it's it's a very long, very um, detailed decision that talks about history. And I I was surprised by the number you said a zillion briefs, uh, you know, the number of amicus briefs that I know there's always amicus briefs that go to the Supreme Court. But this seemed to have have a lot of interest from a lot of people. In fact, they said that expressly 26 states ask them to overturn Roe and give it the power back to them. So it seems like there was just a lot of input in this. And and so I'm just trying to get a sense. And I think a lot of people want to know, especially people who are outside protesting, can they still shape the decision? Can they still sway votes? Can they, how how close to a final draft do we think this is?
2: So uh, there's, in a normal case, (laughs) Uh, When a draft like this is circulated, there would be changes that would be made. The judges would negotiate with each other. There are clearly things in this draft that are written to be attractive uh, to Amy Coney Barrett. There are things in this draft that are written to be attractive to Justice Thomas, the discussion of eugenics and the footnote. That's what a majority judge does when they write a draft. They they really want to bring everyone on their side together. And say what they think the people on their side want them want to be said.
1: And Robbie, when you say attractive, you mean language or or concepts put in there to get their vote for the ultimate. Well, I authority. think he already had their
2: vote. I, yeah. think, I assume he already had their vote, but I think yeah. in writing it, he wanted to, you know, everyone who was taking such a really a, a dramatic, radical, gigantic step. He wanted them all to be very happy about it. I assume anyone would be. And so there's an effort to kind of weave in the strongest points and the points that appeal to the justices in the majority. And in a normal case, that would change over time. There would be further discussion. They would write things in response to whatever is being said in the dissents. You often see in opinions kind of an interchange between the dissenting opinion and the majority opinion. That could have happened here. And yes, you know, I'm not a historian of the Supreme Court, and none of this is public. But I did clerk for the New York Court of Appeals uh, about 700 years ago, which is similar, the highest court in New York. And I can tell you that votes changed, that, that votes would be taken after argument, uh, and that votes changed, including, this is public, very, very, it was a big deal at the time in the gay, the gay adoption case in New York, in which New York first allowed gay parents to adopt uh, children as second parents. And that, I worked as a clerk for Judge Kay on that opinion back in 1996. Um, no. Yes. 1996. Um, so there's no doubt that all of that happens here. However, something very different has happened by leaking the draft, the way it has been leaked, just as a matter of this is no legal. I'm no legal genius here. I'm just talking about human nature. It makes it very hard. I think for anything to change very much. Um, and, and that may have been No one knows, but that may have been the motive on the part of whoever leaked it.
1: Right. If Um, the leaker, pardon me. So interesting. You're you're saying it could be a conservative person. Yeah. If the leaker is a conservative, not a junior clerk for like Kagan, but a conservative who wanted to lock in the votes, then you're right. It's now gone from wet cement to very hardening cement right before our eyes. Yeah, because they don't want to
3: look
2: political. It doesn't even need to necessarily be the votes. It's the language. Mm -hmm. This is a maximalist, radical opinion written in, in, in the phraseology of legal conservatives. But it is a radical step. He basically is wiping away 50 years of constitutional precedent that women have relied on in this country for many, many years that the justices in 1992 did not think could be wiped away, including conservative justices, Justices Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy. Um, But he is calling into question a whole line of constitutional jurisprudence that gives Americans the right to use birth control, that gives whites the right to marry blacks, that gives gay people the right to have sex in the privacy of their homes, and that ultimately led to marriage equality. So if, if and why you, is
1: that Robbie, stop right there for a minute. Sure. And why is that? That's because the framers, it's not part of the constitutional history going back to the 1800s, all of those things that you just identified under Alito's analysis?
2: Taken at its highest level, yes. What what what's it says in this draft is the these this concept of substantive due process, which is what is called by lawyers, but it means certain rights that are inalienable in human beings about how they conduct their personal affairs are not, since they are not specified anywhere in the constitution, there is no constitutional right to them.
1: Yeah, that is is the scariest part when you're looking at some of the um, takeaways, key passages of the opinion, which we've all scrambled to read, not just for this podcast, but just in life. Um, When you see that the reason that he so cavalierly with his textualist approach got rid of that settled law is he said, the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in in our nation's history and traditions. Whatever happened when you and I, all three of us were in law school about the constitution being a living, breathing document whose evolving social mores are supposed to be read onto it by the justices sitting, that's gone. It's just, if you got the numbers, you just, Take away rights, that's where we're at now.
0: Well,
2: especially because when they wrote the Bill of Rights, they used deliberately vague language. Right. As well as the 13th, 14th, and the 15th Right, Amendment. it's not a
1: code. It's not a code book. Right. Exactly.
3: Right, which is why it's been... a which is why it's been interpreted over the years to apply to things like search warrants for cell phones those didn't exist at the time i mean there's plenty of things that aren't listed in the constitution where the constitution has been applied to and it's interesting where where in this particular instance as you said just because it's not written in there they're saying therefore it doesn't apply and of course everybody says well what's next what's coming next and there was right. sort of a there was a, a one sentence towards the end. Don't worry, we only apply this to the the special circumstance of abortion. This doesn't apply to anything else. But I I found that to be cold comfort. I did not buy that one one bit. Given I am
2: just reading that. That's a page. Hold on, thirty-two.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, for so, him so you're all. right.
2: He does do that. But the, but the problem is before that, in page after page after page, exactly, he eviscerates yeah. the legal underpinnings that led to all those other decisions. So it's one thing to say, well, I'm not saying anything about it now, but when you've spent the last 20 pages explaining why why that whole area of constitutional jurisprudence is dead wrong, it's hard to imagine, for sure people will challenge it in cases, no question about that. And it's hard to imagine that the Supreme Court wouldn't be open to hearing those cases, have an open mind about the results, and very easily
3: probably reach the same result there.
1: Huh? Yeah, in, I mean, they were. This, sorry, Karen, go ahead.
3: No, I was just going to say Alito does say, OK, OK, we've established it's not in there and there's other things that aren't in there as well. So then the next thing we look to, you know, they sort of take the different things you can look to. And one of the things they look to is this concept of, of stare decisis or, or historical precedent. And, you know, and and it makes you sort of think about history in ways that certainly you wonder what is it about the you know, this this country was founded in a rebellion from England. And yet they look to common law, England, and they're going back to at one point the 1300s and then the 1600s and the 1800s. And I'm thinking, what was so magical about those times in history? And at what point does something become history? I mean, Roe was was decided 50 years ago. Isn't that history at this point? But they talk about this magical date of the founding of this country and and when these, you know, when when sort of these rights were, were listed. But these were all written by men. Women didn't have rights at the time. I mean, so it just it just doesn't make any sense. It's like they are, are talking about history when it suits them. And then when it doesn't suit them, they sort of, you know, they sort of pull well, back on it. And, well, and at one point when they were talking about, you know, OK, but but it's OK to overrule bad decisions, you know, Roe was bad from the beginning. Roe was badly decided from the beginning. They, they, they list, I think it's two pages of footnotes of all the times that Supreme Court precedent has been overruled because of bad decisions, but they call out three of them. And one of them they call out and they mention uh, they mention who the, the judge was in that decision, and it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And there's like, see, even she agrees. But then they talk about all the other decisions. They don't mention who authored them, but it almost seemed like this code for where for we're going to throw it in your face. You know, the, all these people that that you hold up and revere, like Judge Justice Ginsburg, even she agrees that these are the, the standards that apply. But it, it just seemed the decision just seemed really, um, at least for me, just just very like they, this is the result that they wanted and they're going to figure out a way to fit history, precedent and the law into the result that they wanted.
1: Well, well, let me show you the story decisis intellectual dishonesty that he practiced. At one point he says the weakest claim of stare decisis is on constitutional principles he said when we're talking about interpreting the constitution the weakest hold on stare decisis is present but then later on when he's when he delivers the opinion the the draft opinion which is i agree with robbie now it's locking into wet into dry cement he says and it's based on stare decisis i mean which is it man are you doing what karen just said are you Reverse engineering, you're, it's a, it's a result-driven, which we all, we all know it is. They have the numbers, and so they're clearing the shelves for as long as they can of everything that matters to them and was settled law for us from a progressive democratic standpoint.
2: So let, let me say a few things. So first of all, for the last couple of years since Justice Kennedy left the court, we have seen decision after decision where this court and and Chief Justice Roberts, you can see growing increasingly uncomfortable with this, but in which the Supreme Court has shown a greater and greater disregard for precedent or stare decisis. Um, In statutory cases, in criminal cases, in the First Amendment context in particular, they have in recent years overruled cases at a faster pace than I think ever before, surely ever before in recent Supreme Court history. And so there were warning signs that this was coming, and there's a good argument that all of that was a building block to what happened here. But as, as my friend Dahlia Lithwick points out today in her piece, or yes, I think she wrote it late last night or early this morning uh, in Slate, you don't have a if if there's no such thing as starry decisis, if people can't depend. On the fact that a decision of the court, much less the Supreme Court, can be relied upon and is binding in future situations. It's hard to see it, it, it's hard to see the continued health and arguably even the continued legitimacy of our court system, and certainly the Supreme Court. And, And I would could not disagree more strenuously with Justice Alito about precedent in the context of of constitutional cases, when the Supreme Court interprets a clause of the Constitution to extend a right to a minority group for the first time, never before, never before in the history of our country has that right ever been taken away.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
2: Its view of stare decisis, its its willingness to overturn precedent, its willingness to overlook history, but never before in the history of our country and our and I believe our great constitution, has our system extended a right to someone and then said fifty years later, sorry, just kidding, didn't really mean it, women. (laughs) It's no longer a right. And ironically, in in the Lawrence case, which overturned Bowers v. Hardwick, which Mm -hmm. gave gay people the right to have intimate relations, relations in privacy in their own homes. Justice Kennedy wrote in that in that decision that Bowers was wrong when it was decided, and it was wrong today. That's exactly the language, yeah. pretty much, that Justice Alito uses in this draft. But Justice Alito was expressing a willingness now to overturn Lawrence. So what yeah. is what are they going to say now? Sorry. Actually, Bowers was right when it was decided, and is right today. And, and, and it, or
1: it's a or it's an example, Karen used yeah. of sticking it to us and sticking it to us by using the language from Bowers. I we talked we've talked about precedent in over a hundred podcasts here, um, and and we're actually peers. Uh, Karen's close to it in terms of vintage from law school. When I left law school, I thought, all right, I'm going to learn this body of law, especially constitutional doctrine. I'm going to be pretty well set for a while. And now every two years or three years, only because, to paraphrase Justice Sotomayor, only because they've got the numbers and it's politics, that's the only thing that's changed. It's not that the country has gotten more against abortion since it was ruled upon. Today in a poll, 57% are totally in favor of all levels of abortion. It's not that. It's the numbers that changed.
2: Look at the key votes in Casey. Justice Kennedy, personally, I'm quite confident, does not like abortion. He's a religious Catholic and I'm quite confident his personal view is that abortion is a bad thing. But in 1992, given 20 years of precedent, he felt bound, duty bound as a justice of the Supreme Court to uphold Roe because so many women had relied on it for so long. Well, now they've relied on it twice
3: as long. Right. I mean, look, nobody nobody likes abortion. Nobody wakes up and says, guess what? I really am excited I get to do today. You know, it's not something you want to do. It's not something you take lightly. People don't use it as a form of birth control. Anyone who's ever had to make the decision to have an abortion, whether it's because you were sexually assaulted, raped. You, can, you just don't want the child, you know. You're just not ready to be to have a child, whether the 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 child has some sort of congenital issue that you you are ill-equipped to deal with. Whatever the issue is, that that entire process that is so emotional and it's so personal and what you have to go through and the things that you go through to do it, but nobody's excited about it. Nobody wants to do it. And it is such a personal choice that absolutely, I mean, it's amazing to me uh, how this decision says, no, this has to be left up to the States. No, it has to be left up to the person. It has to be left up to the individual woman who is making this decision about her body, about her life and about what she's going to do. And in the case of was I haven't been this upset professionally, I think ever, you know, I get upset in my personal life about things, you know, kids, whatever. I haven't, I am so upset by this in ways that I, I can't even express, you know, it's, and it's, it's, I just can't believe what this case means for future cases, for future rights, for women in this country in general. I mean, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment was never passed. And so, you know, really the, the the people who wrote the constitution, they're all men. And they are all, you know, and women didn't have the same rights at that time. And, you know, for a long, long time, the Equal Rights Amendment was was proposed and it was never passed. So what's gonna happen? Are we now going to start losing other rights as well? But even if we don't lose any other rights and even if just Justice Alito is correct that this is just about abortion. That's bad enough. I mean, it's not like women are going to stop having abortions. And I have a, I have a couple of logistical questions for you. So one, there's a couple of questions that people have asked and that that people are curious about. One in particular, and I'll I'll ask these two questions together. Um, One is, does this have to be regular? Does this decisions say that only the states can legislate it because it's unclear whether the federal government, whether they leave open the possibility, assuming the Senate has the 60 votes and, you know, whatever, assuming they can get it passed and signed. Can this be legislated federally or does this have to be with the state? And I think the the, I think the um, decision personally is unclear as to that. They make it seem like the state, but people also elect their federal the, the federal legislators too so I wasn't sure um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that and the other question I have legislatively I'm letting
1: is you down like now <laughs> these are these are
3: easy questions for saying, you too, like I was very good at taking notes
2: It's like school. a press
1: conference two <laughs>
0: questions yeah. right. two questions
3: no because I, I I cannot tell you. When this came, the only thing that gave me comfort when this came down was the fact that you were coming on the show, and I was gonna get—we were gonna get to ask you all these questions because i was so—I have so many of them. So another question is—is uh, is, um, let's say half the states, give or take, uh, will outlaw or ban uh, abortion, and half the states will uh, continue to allow abortion. Can women, can those states that outlie, outlaw it, can they also prevent women from traveling, from citizens and residents of a particular state, from traveling to other states? You know, the way, um, the way some people are fearing, you know, that, that they'll get stopped at the border of, you know, California going into Nevada or wherever. And, you know, where are you going? Are you pregnant? Asking questions, etc. cetera. Can you legislate that? Can you stop that?
1: Okay, right, some good take, ones. Go ahead, let me
3: try to take these. I'm gonna actually I'm gonna
2: go back to so one, I, I too, <laughs> like I remember I found about out this, I found out about this last night. I was just about to go to sleep and I made the mistake of looking on my iPad to see what was going on, and I saw this. And like a lot of great tragedies, honestly, I think I'll always remember where I was. I remember obviously where I was on 9-11. I'm sure I will always remember where I was and how I was when I, when I first heard this news, I think a lot of Americans, particularly American women are going to feel that way um, two, um the degree of intrusion that governments are now allowed to have into the personal health and decisions of women is, is so inconsistent with traditional federalist society views about limited government, right? So, I mean, I think a lot of the conservatives have been moving away from libertarianism for quite some time. But if you look at decision, it's not a libertarian, it's not a limited government decision. It's a decision that government, you know, some would say in very like Margaret Atwood, handmade any ways, has the right to regulate the reproductive health and the reproductive decisions of women. And that is not what you would hear from people in this part in this part of kind of the legal um, structure, legal jurisprudence, legal law schools, et cetera, in any other context. Only when it comes to women is radical intrusion into personal decisions okay. With respect to whether the state or federal government, whether the federal government could pass a law to outlaw abortion, that's gonna depend, believe it or not, on what the conservative majority on this court believes is the limits of the power of the federal government. Remember in Obamacare, there was a great debate about this. And most of the conservatives believe that there was not authority for the federal government to pass Obamacare either under the Commerce Clause or, or ultimately, as Chief Justice Roberts came in to save it, under the taxing clause. Here, while I think they a lot of them would agree to it, they are going to need to find some federal basis of power to legislate a law that would prohibit abortion nationwide. They may well do that. They may think that the Commerce Clause gives them that right here, but so, I have so a feeling- Robbie,
1: let, let me interrupt for one second, just so we sure. can bring our audience up to speed. If the federal government doesn't have a hook, you know, the Congress doesn't have a hook within federal power reserved to it or given to it by the constitution, otherwise it's reserved to the states, then they're not able to legislate. Oftentimes they try to use, let's say the commerce clause to try to get in on regulating something. I'm not sure that fits here. Although if people are trying to go cross border to, 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 uh, to exercise their right to an abortion in another state, maybe that does implicate interstate something. But you're right, if they don't find that, and, or if they think they found it, pass the law, somehow get enough votes and they've been short already. They were out. They were only at a 50 mark and they need 60. I know that uh, Schumer is going to try to do it again, but I don't much. He's never going to get to 60 uh, right now, especially maybe. Maybe it's a. Yeah, few but more. you know
3: what? Put them on record. Well, that no, no, no. Well, they, they're going to do
1: that. They're going to Make do them that. go but, on the record. But, but, but my point is, even if they were to pass that, your point, Robbie, is just as in Obamacare, there will be a suit challenging the federal government, and then Supreme Court justices, the same group we're dealing with here, are going to have to decide whether the federal government, the Congress properly exercises power or not, and or not. And if not, then it's going to be left, as Alito has suggested, to the individual, you know, state houses to make this decision.
2: let me put it this way. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think it is hard to reconcile a vote in Obamacare that the federal government did not have power under the Commerce Clause or the Taxing Clause to create Obamacare, and at the same time, take the position that the federal government does have the power to outlaw, to prohibit, or especially criminally prohibit abortion nationwide. I'm not telling you that someone won't be able to reconcile those two things, but at least at the surface, the logic seems inconsistent. Um, and so that will be the big issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, courts, they've just said they change their minds all the time. So maybe they can start decides decisive doesn't matter that much. And they can change their minds and, on and that. You
1: know what this one of the there were so many sad comments that will be used against progressive rights going forward if Alito's majority becomes the majority opinion of the court. One of them was we it, it's just this cavalier we live in an ivory tower. We're just here calling balls and strikes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't concern us, he said. I'm paraphrasing. What happens that. after yeah. we issue this opinion? That is not our concern. What happens yeah. in America based on the ruling? We're just here to say what the Constitution allows. Are you they basically they
3: said we don't live in the real world? Is what they basically yeah. I don't think
2: Oliver Wendell Holmes would would have agreed with that statement. I think uh, he a, a believed exactly the opposite. Uh, right. Um, The the final question you asked is about travel, and there you have 13th Amendment issues. Believe it or not, the 13th Amendment, which freed the slaves, has been interpreted as creating a constitutional right to travel across state lines. Um, And if something is legal in one state and illegal in another, you are still allowed to cross the state line and do something in the state where it's legal, i.e., let's use an obvious example, smoke pot in Colorado, even if you can't smoke pot in Texas. And that's a pretty established legal principle. Um, Even though it's
3: not enumerated.
2: Even though it's not enumerated. But uh, that principle is going to be put very much to the test uh, when states like Texas start passing laws that say you cannot go to New York or California or wherever and get an abortion. If you do, we will criminally prosecute you um, either when you get back or we may even try to extradite you to Texas.
1: So we're going to have
3: they're going to claim that your your unborn fetus is a Texas citizen. And if you if you, you know, murder this this Texas citizen, we have a right to prosecute you. So Um, so We're going
1: to have New York versus Texas actually states against each other before this Supreme Court at some point on this kind of issue.
3: I think no question. Yep. For sure. So the decision talked a, a little bit about uh, kind of is this a right of privacy or is this a, a, liber- a, a right to liberty? I mean, what what difference do those does that matter? Whether this is one versus the other, and 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 why was there so much talk about about those t- sorts of distinctions and the types of scrutiny, uh, for example, you know that that this might that that having a right to an abortion would have.
2: Look, that is all discussion about, I think, intended to establish that there is no clear, um, cogent, uh, explicit right in the Constitution to to have the kind of, to be able to make the decision to have an abortion. And so there's a lot, and, and they are right, and Justice Ginsburg said this herself, that if you go back to the original Roe decision, I think a lot of people would have written it in a different way. Um, we actually submitted an amicus brief in this case on behalf of some law professors that he talks about uh, in the draft opinion. He doesn't like it very much in which we talked about the equal protection rights of women to be able to order their lives and decide whether or not to have children and when to have children. Um, that almost doesn't matter. That's almost beside the point, though, when you think about the concept, the concept of stare decisis again. That might have been an argument in a case brought two years after Roe or even in a case brought five years before Casey. But once Casey was decided in 1992 and the, the justices said that in this context, stare decisis is incredibly important. And these, aren't, these rights are now rights woven into the fabric of our constitutional system. To then go back and kind of have these almost law school type debates about what's the best grounding for the liberty interest at stake or what would have been a better analytical or theoretical basis or lack of basis to discuss these rights, honestly, is a law school exercise, because what has happened is 50 years of reliance and expectation and Rights that women had that are now, again, for the very first time in our nation's history, at least to my knowledge, being taken away.
1: Robbie, let me let's let's leave on this note. I want to be respectful of your time. Let's leave on this note. Let's as, let's assume for the purposes of the last few minutes that this opinion by Alito becomes the majority opinion without without many changes, concurrences and dissents. I'm sure are flying around, but this is it. Um, what do you think it means? We touched on it earlier. What do you think what do you, two things? What do you think it means for the future of rights? What, where, where does it go from here? And what can our audience do about it in terms of their own state houses or at the ballot box? Is there you know marching is great and' I'm, I'm, I'm into participatory democracy. But what can people do about it who don't agree with the decision made by nine people wearing black robes sitting at the Supreme Court?
2: So if this decision or something substantially like it is issued by, by the Supreme Court, and I think it's fair to assume that that's what will happen. Um, I think essentially you answered your question in, in asking the question, which is we cannot look to the Supreme Court, at least as it's currently constituted, as a force that will protect constitutional rights in our society. Wow. And, and the <laughs> only institutions we have to look to are the executive and the legislative branches, which means the only thing you could do, and I agree rallies are great, but what's far more important than rallies are, are is voting. Uh, and that the only way to enforce those rights and protect those rights going forward is to vote and to get the numbers out to vote both at the state level, um, at the local level, and certainly at the federal level.
1: That, 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 that statement, which just, I mean, uh, literally took my breath away that you just made, which is so right on and right, is that we can no longer look to the US Supreme Court to protect our constitutional rights. I mean, uh, the, for, they keep talking about the framers and the founding fathers. Uh, I am sure justices that, that we all admired in law school are spinning in their graves, as maybe even John Marshall is about what has just transpired. I couldn't ask for and Karen and I couldn't ask for a better guest today than you. It happened by by happenstance. It was we we're supposed to be talking about. And, I, and I'll, um, I'll extend an invitation to you to come back on the show. To talk I'll about come it.
3: back. And I'll come back and talk
2: yeah. about the Florida case. Yeah, anytime. it's a
1: great case. Yeah. So, so, so Can Rock, you just
3: give us a, a, like a yeah. just a procedural what, what to expect next in the in the don't say gay uh In the um, case that you brought it, it's a fascinating case that that just is amazing, and the stories that you put in there of the plaintiffs and their individual stories and how they're affected—I had chills when I was reading that. I I just couldn't believe what they go through, and what you're doing there is so important. So, can you just give us a little bit, sort of, what's next in that?
2: So, right now, we don't have much agreed to with the state. You'll be shocked to learn that we're not having a lot of agreement on schedule. So right now all that's agreed to is that we are going to amend our complaint by may 27th and that the state will then move to dismiss 30 days after that um we take the position and we this has all been said to the court so it's public that at the same time the motion to dismiss is decided the judge should also entertain our arguments for preliminary injunction since there's a great overlap between those two arguments it's kind of silly i've never done this in a preliminary injunction context before where you first litigate a motion to dismiss And then you litigate the preliminary injunction, so the judge is going to have to decide that issue, but we take the position that the court. uh, should entertain a preliminary injunction he's going to have the judge will have lots of expert affidavits from a lot of experts, including nation nationally renowned psychologists. uh, Both for adolescent psychology and for early childhood psychology Um, and we are going to make the case that this law is unconstitutional. And again, I hate to be overly dramatic, I'm not really being overly dramatic here, that children will be harmed and probably, sadly, adolescents will commit suicide if this law as enacted and as broadly as it's enacted goes into effect uh, and kids are bullied and written out and not acknowledged and not even helped by school guidance counselors if they have issues about being gay. Uh, if that's the state of affairs in the state of Florida so, so for, for,
3: for our audience you know who who don't necessarily read civil or criminal complaints uh, regularly this particular complaint is really worth. Uh, worth reading. It's, it doesn't read like, you know, it's, 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 it's written in a way that people can really understand not just the law, but also just the heart and soul of what's at stake here and the real world examples that you give about what does this mean that, that two parents, uh, gay parents can't come to school for a parent teacher conference, or they can't refer to them as, you know, my two dads, or just all the ways, this isn't just about, textbooks and it's just all of the implications that that this has for real world real life people who are living their lives and just the stories that that you put in this complaint about about these young kids and what they went through and and how they've had to you know i i can't wait to live in a place in a society where you don't have to come out where it's just it's not a thing, you know. You're just you're just you, and you get to be you, and you don't have to live in the shadows, and you don't have to whisper. And and your complaint, I think, is worth people, and, and I think we should, if we can, if we can link to it. Yeah, we're um, for post, pe- we'll, we'll yeah, post for it. Yeah, for people uh, for people to read, it's just so beautifully written as as something that really frames the issue of why this is so important and why this case is so consequential.
2: So I was talking recently to one of the experts in the case, and she was. She's an expert in early childhood psychology. And she was explaining to me, it makes sense if you think about it, that the whole point of K through three, which is one of the sectors that this law is targeted at, the whole point of K through three education is to really kind of socialize kids. (laughs) It's to teach kids to stand in line, to share, to be part of a community, to socialize them. That's kind of what kindergarten, first grade, second grade are are all about. And she said, if you have a, a kid who's sitting in a first grade class, and he says to his teacher, why does Jimmy over there have two moms? And the teacher can't answer the question or looks anxious in not answering the question, or does anything else like that? She said, look, kids are smart. They, they will get that there's an issue and you are acting in a way that is completely counter to the whole point of the education in the first place which is to teach the kids to be part of a community and to be nice to each other and to share yada yada. She says that's it's exactly opposite to what you're trying to achieve. There's no way to have this law be consistent with a good early childhood education for anyone. And oh, no also, one is suggesting yeah. that kids should be reading sexual content or porn or anything like that,
3: right? And they call brain. it grooming. They're, they're you know, yeah. they're, they're. You're grooming them by, you know, acknowledging just this people is, that people are different. It's just unbelievable. Just
1: outrageous, Tucker Carlson BS to make create wedges in the American people. It, none of that is happening. But, none of there's no critical. The
2: most is they're doing it on the backs of kids?
1: Well, of course. You, know
2: you want to pick pick on me? Well, Don't
1: I agree. am some fourth
2: grader in, in the Panhandle.
1: I'm sure you caught it when DeSantis signed the bill. On critical race theory, which isn't critical race theory, um, Martin Luther King Day, right? It's something else. Mm-hmm. He had black children behind mm-hmm. him holding up signs with the, you know, the strike through it. I mean, you, you're using children as as props. I mean, he, he, they do it all the time. Black children as props on on this issue. I mean, it's really disgusting. One quick question, Robbie: Why Northern District of Florida? Is that because of Tallahassee? Why why that?
2: Shoot? sue the governor and you sue various state entities, you have to do it in Tallahassee. You got
1: to do it in Tallahassee. So, and who's your judge?
2: A guy by the name of Windsor without a D, because my client in Windsor was Windsor with a D. Oh, right, right. um, Who worked in the uh, Solicitor General's office in Florida. He's been on the bench a few years.
1: All right. I understand. Okay. Well, Robbie Kaplan, thank you so much for joining the Midweek Edition of Legal AF. Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifolo. And we will follow all of your cases moving forward. And you have an open invitation to join us anytime you'd like. And we'll reach out and ping you again to come back and share with our when audience. If there's
2: news in Florida, I'll be happy to be on again. Thank, okay. you. thank you. Thank you so well much. One more thing, Michael. Sure. In that group, by the way, when he announced the don't say gay law, I guarantee you, just given statistics, that one of the 40 kids surrounding him there is going to turn out to be gay. I
3: guarantee it. Just i was in florida this weekend and as soon as i got off the plane literally the first words out of my mouth i just said gay <laughs> i had to i had to some it was day irresistible that
2: poor, someday that poor boy or girl will look back on this and imagine oh, yeah. how
3: they're gonna feel
1: that's that's scarring in and in it's and of disgraceful it's disgraceful
3: it's just, yeah. it's just we're, we're we're heading in the absolute wrong direction and it's it's absolutely upsetting and i it's I don't know. I don't understand, actually, how I, this is happening. I never
2: thought a state in the United States would be patterning itself after Hungary or Russia. But that's what's happening down in Florida right now.
1: Yeah. And and, and throughout the country, led by by certain Republican groups, agreed. Um, so we'll conclude this uh, edition of Legal AF Midweek. Shout out to the Midas Mighty and the Legal AFers. You can get this podcast every place you get your podcast from, and it will be on YouTube. Uh, this evening, of course, and on video throughout with a, with a live chat that maybe will be will be graced with the uh, participation of Robbie Kaplan. We'll say good night, everybody.